I think we can't lose sight of like what we're really fighting for here, which is like all of those people to be included in the financial system, you know, financial privacy, the separation of money and state. You know, these things are way bigger than any centralized exchange. Hello there from Vegas. How are you all? Did you have a good weekend? I'm just about to leave Vegas. I'm just about to go and catch my flight back to the UK. I've been away for about two weeks, but I feel like I've done so much. It feels like forever. I've been to San Diego. I've been to LA for the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I came to Vegas. I went over to Texas. Back in Vegas, but now I'm about to head home to the great town of Bedford. Go back and see my football team and catch up with my family. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Jesse Power back on the show. We're going to be talking about FTX and everything that happened there. Now, if you don't know Jesse, Jesse runs Kraken, and he was very much involved when Mt. Gox crashed. He went out to Japan and tried to help recover the funds and sort the situation out. So Jesse probably has a little bit of PTSD in relation to exchanges crashing. You know, he covered the whole Quadriga thing when that happened recently as well. Now, Jesse, somebody who runs an exchange, has seen these exchanges blowing up, was pretty angry about everything that happened. And if you go onto Twitter, I think we're going to put it in the show notes, but if you go onto Twitter, he wrote a whole thread about it, why he was so angry about everything that happened. And so I wanted to get him back on the show. I wanted to talk to him about this, talk about his experience, what we can learn from this, what's been, what can be done, you know, how regulators might respond, what we can do about this, like everything that has been put into this industry in the last 13 years. So yeah, it's great to get Jesse back on the show. I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions about it, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I will get back to you as soon as possible. All right, Jesse. All right. Been a while. Here we go. Yeah, too long. Yeah, you good? Yeah, I'm good. Right. Um, it's been a big week and I read your Twitter thread uh, where you're particularly pissed off. Super pissed. Yeah, yeah. and rightly so. And we should dig into that. And I I think one of the reasons is you went through all of this with Mt. Gox. People might not know, you know, yeah. we've got a lot of new people, new listeners. People, some might not even know what Mt. Gox is, what happened. But I know you you flew out there, didn't you, to Japan? I, I did, yeah. Well, I flew out the first time that they got hacked in 2011. Yeah. The final explosion was 2014. Uh, but it seems like what happened in 2011 might have had a lasting impact on them. Uh, you know, what, what we think happened in 2014 was that they had actually had their private keys compromised at some point in the past. And um, that was their cold storage. And they kept using those wallets even after those keys had been compromised. So what the hacker was doing was um, you just kept slowly draining those uh, wallets over time. And um, Mark just didn't notice. You know, he had this wallet off like in a vault, wasn't paying attention to it. Right. And so he was just like, oh, the hot wallet's too full. Let me just throw this into the cold wallet. Not paying attention to like, you know, the cold wallet is basically continuing to get drained. Uh, so, you know, at one point the hot wallet was empty. He went to go get the cold wallet and the cold wallet was empty, but it should have had like 600,000 Bitcoin in it. Unbelievable. So, um, yeah, pretty crazy. But, um, you know, I think in total at the time, that was like 400 million bucks. And, uh, you know, FTX is 20 times that, so. Yeah, and there's no Bitcoin to recover with FTX. Seems like not, yeah. Yeah, so for the context of people, what was the impact of Mt. Gox at the time? Did that feel like that was a threat to the whole industry? Yeah, absolutely. So we were all super concerned about it. You know, I, I talked to Mark about it. Um, you know, he was really trying to keep things going. I mean, he was 
extremely concerned about the impact on the industry of of this blow up. And uh, you know, there were several efforts to try to like raise money to save them and um, fill the hole, uh, but nobody could get it done. You know, and, and probably it's probably better that it didn't get done because. Um, there's a lot of kind of like systemic problems there that, you know, might have just perpetuated had we filled that hole at the time. Uh, so I think sometimes it's better to just clean these guys out and like start over. Uh, but at the time, um, yeah, everyone, everyone was like thinking this is, this is going to be a massive setback. And uh, it was, you know, we had many banking relationships, you know, back in 2014, it was really hard to get a bank to work with you. And, um, we were just on the edge of having, you know, several more banking relationships uh, put together and um, other partnerships, you know, that just after Gox happened, everyone just kind of backed off and there was a massive chilling effect on the whole industry. Um, everyone outside of the industry was scared, didn't want to touch it. And uh, it took years to recover from that. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a br brutal experience to go through. Um, and I think we got some good things out of it in that we got the whole movement of not your keys, not your Bitcoin to encourage people to, to self-custody. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I wasn't around then, so I, I didn't go through the experience. But one of the things that stands out from that to now is that, I mean, what, what, were, we, what were we, eight years on from the... Yeah, it was like Feb 2014. And people still haven't received their Bitcoin through the legal process of right. having them returned. And, you know, some of these, if they recover assets from FTX, which I don't know if they will because... We get onto the hacker, but this is going to take years again to unwind. Probably, yeah. Um, I think the U.S. bankruptcy could be faster than the Japanese bankruptcy, and uh, there were some complications in Japan with um, you know because there was a hack. Uh, we didn't know if the data was reliable. Um, there had to be an investigation, um, and uh, hopefully that won't take as long here. Uh, but we'll see, you know, it's still not clear if, if there was a hack at FTX. Um, but there are also like frivolous lawsuits coming after the estate in Japan. So you mm -hmm. had like the, the coin lab, Peter Vicenis suing for tens of millions of dollars, basically just opportunistically over some bullshit contract that, you know, like wasn't really enforceable, should not have been enforceable, uh, above the account holders. I mean, basically he's trying to sue for the balances of the, users and saying that his business complaint with Mark should have preferential treatment above the account balances of the users, which is absolutely insane. But, um, you know, even if you could fight him out for years, you know, he's, he's basically saying like, Hey, I'm just going to drag this out. So do you want to just pay me off to go away? Is that still so, going on? Uh, I think they've gotten rid of the lawsuits from him right. or somehow gotten past them. I think we're on schedule to return funds next year but like i've thought that for like the last five years in a row so we'll see and that was based on mark doing a deal with peter to allow them to launch an exchange in the u.s right right yeah it was basically for the u.s market for like the brand yeah the right to launch their own exchange under the mount gox brand in the u.s yeah okay all right so we'll switch to uh ftx because we've there's a lot that's gone on in the world of Bitcoin and crypto since then. Um, we've had fork wars and you know, various other things, but the exchange world has been relatively stable. I know we had what happened with Quadriga, but what was that? Two hundred fifty million was that? I think maybe a little bit more mm -hmm. than that. But yeah. I know you dug into that one. But and we've had some smaller exchanges, but nothing huge blowing up. 
And then we get to uh, this year, and on, you know, on top of what's happened with Luna and Three Hours Capital, we've now got FTX. But just before we get into that, obviously you run an exchange, and and FTX is a competitor that kind of came out of nowhere and, and seemed to just, I don't know, just at such rapid speed become maybe on the brand side, one of the world's most well-known. Mm-hmm. You, lo- looking from the outside, were you suspicious with any of that? For sure. Um, their rise to fame was very fast and uh, they were spending a ton of money. And um, we knew from from having built our own exchange you know, over the last 11 years that the things they were doing could not possibly be done uh, responsibly you know, with the amount of time and, and staff and resources that they had. And um, so, you know, from our perspective, there was something really sketchy going on there. Um, you know, I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe Alameda is making shitloads of money trading Bitcoin. And, um, you know, I figured these guys could have built a, a reasonable exchange, um, but it was like the custody stuff that I was really concerned about. And, you know, we've just seen in the last week as well, like another exchange accidentally sent $400 million to the wrong address as well. But yeah, but was it an accident? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll find out, right? Yeah. Um, hopefully. But, um, you know, I think there's some, there's some things that you kind of build over time. And, you know, it seems like what we, from what we know of FTX, it was just like a few people at the top that were doing everything with basically zero process, zero controls, zero accountability, like for anything, like Sam could literally like cut and paste a balance on a spreadsheet and move money between FTX and Alameda. Was that known or was that something that people were just suspicious about? I don't know if that's like totally known. I mean, people suspect that. And Sam has made some statements that kind of like allude to to that, um, you know, and having a backdoor and and the ability to move funds without them being noticed by other people. Uh, So it does seem like FTX and Alameda kind of shared a common piggy bank, which was like the user's funds. Um, and so, you know, I think Kraken also, you know, went through a phase when we were very small, you know, just like five guys in a room where I could move the money around, you know, or our CTO could move the, the money around. That's understandable when you're an extremely small company like that. And, um, you know, I would tell VCs as well, who last year, you know, we're both looking at investing in us and FTX at the same time. And they would say things like, hey, you guys are, you know, you're like uh, 10 times the size of FTX or your security team is 100 people. Why is your security team 100 people? FTX is only 50 people in total. So like Kraken seems very inefficient. (laughs) And we explain to them like, look, like this stuff exists for a reason, right? We're we're not, we're not like sharing photos. We're trying to be like Fort Knox. We need to protect these funds at all costs. And that means, unfortunately, bureaucracy, protocols, headcount, you know, having to build extra infrastructure to track all this stuff, reconcile accounts, you know, make sure money isn't like silently bleeding off over time, you know, identify where there's um, discrepancies, but you have to like build all this stuff. And if you're starting an exchange with a few people at the start of the, the bull market, and they got very lucky with the timing, which is another thing that really played into their favor was the VCs would like look at their their growth chart versus our growth chart, you know, and our growth chart comes with several cycles of bull and bear markets, right? And if you look at it over a longer time span, it just doesn't look like a total hockey stick, right? It's like up and down. And FTX coming in right at the start of the bull market, their growth just looks like a hockey stick. And, you know, the VCs are just like extrapolating from there. 
not understanding the, the cycles in, in crypto or any of that. And um, you know, I think that also played very well into the, to their valuation um, and, all, and all the hype and allowed them to just fundraise basically with, with zero scrutiny, zero diligence. Um, and you've seen like some of the statements from, from some of the VCs that they've made. Sequoia. Yeah, I mean, I mean like, what? <laughs> unbelievable, right? Like you guys just clearly did like zero diligence on this. You put your name on this thing. I feel like they got to have some accountability because people look at that name and, and assume, oh, you wrote these guys a nine-figure check. You must have done some diligence. You must have looked at this, right, before you wrote off like you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to them. But actually, no, they, they actually didn't. They just wrote the check blindly, basically. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people, unfortunately, kind of relied on, on that stamp of approval. They saw those VCs as being like someone, someone did some diligence here uh, and put their name on this. And um, unfortunately, they didn't. And I think that's the case for a lot of VCs are just kind of piling into stuff, playing the greater fool strategy, maybe. Uh, and people rely on that. Yeah, it, it blew my mind, the Sequoia stuff, because you look at this and thinking, you guys surely are smart. You employ smart people. You know, you have, you've got experience of investing in companies. You've got experience of looking at data. It just smacks to me that they've got totally ahead of themselves, got excited and confident mm-hmm. and just said, yeah, fuck it, let's write a check. And Yeah. that That is definitely the case for many investors because we talk to many of the same investors. And... Um, that's literally what they said. Then we just threw a check in because it, things were moving so fast. FOMO. Yeah. FOMO investing. So I'm going to put your thread into the show notes. I think people should read it. I think there's two angles to your anger, though. Not only if you're, are you angry about what happened there, but I think rightly you're also a bit pissed off with the way the press is dealing with different companies and different personalities. And, mm-hmm. But we can get into both and we should get into both. Um, but really, can you outline like the background to why you're so pissed off about it. Because, look, firstly, there's a good argument for, this is good for Kraken, right? This is good for Kraken when you go and raise money. You can go and say, look, this is this is what happens when you put money into a, a, a new business that isn't established, that isn't experienced. And also, you've got a good argument for you know new customers coming in. I mean, I saw, you know, you might have seen it, Travis Kling's fund, Dicker Guy. They lost a lot of money in this, mm-hmm. and that might be the end of their fund. Mm-hmm. And... You know, for someone like that, I mean, I'm not going to get into the details because Travis is a friend, but, and that's a terrible experience for him to go through. But other traders now, trust is going to become an important thing. And that's, that could be obviously a benefit to you. But at the same time, I guess there's a, this puts the industry back. So, yep. like, how do you square those? Yeah, I mean, it's always nice to, to get a bad actor out of the industry. Um, obviously, it's, it's nice to get rid of a competitor. Um, but you know, we, we never sought to be like the only exchange that exists. And I think that when we're fighting these battles in DC, having more voices is, is better. And obviously, you know, part of the reason for creating Kraken in the first place was, was what would happen with Gox in 2011. And, uh, when Gox went offline for a week and a half due to a hack at that time, the whole industry was, was shut down. We had no price discovery. Merchants couldn't accept Bitcoin. Um, it was a massive problem. And I thought, we better have more than one exchange just in case, you know, so this doesn't happen again. And I think for the industry, um, things are this time are just moving on, right? We have a bunch of exchanges. There are a bunch of other places people can go trade. 
Um, it's almost like FTX was never there except for this $10 billion crater in the ground. And yes, Kraken's getting more users signing up now than we were two weeks ago. Um, we're also getting more funds coming off of the exchange, which I, I think is great. I think people should get their money off of exchanges. I think people should spread their money around, not have it all concentrated in one place and self-custody as much as possible. Um, so, you know, I'm not concerned about that. We, we don't get paid for holding people's balances. It's just like strictly a liability for us. So, hmm. you know, I only want your balance on Kraken if you're going to be trading with it. Otherwise, it's just sitting there as like something for me to possibly lose. And I'm getting no compensation for taking that, that risk, you know. So, um, you know, on, on one hand, yeah, it, it's probably, it, it helps us in terms of our relative position in the market. You know, maybe we're in the top three exchanges now instead of whatever the top four. Um, so that's nice, but yeah, to your point, you know, about the broader industry, um, there, there's going to be another chilling effect. I think, you know, I think that the media cycles, um, once they get over Sam, you know, and stop, stop writing these puff pieces, if they ever will, uh, you know, the real story is going to come out and this is going to be extremely negative. Uh, I think it's going to turn off retail investors. I think it's going to it's going to cause politicians to overreact and feel like they need to do something uh, to clamp down on the space, you know, which could be which just be bad for everyone. And uh, you know, it could send us into an even deeper protracted bear market and and winter. And I mean, just in the last week, the prices have come down. You know, we hold a lot of Bitcoin and Ether on the balance sheet, and the prices are all down twenty five percent from a week ago. So that's not great. You know, I think um, it could be a while before we recover from this and, uh, you know, there could be more contagion, you know, we just saw BlockFi and, um, you know, there's probably anyone else in the lending business, you know, I would have my eye on right now, uh, because there's just so much contagion and like interconnectedness of, uh, these lenders and the collateral they were using. And, uh, many were not, uh, were, were giving just fully uncollateralized loans on the basis of someone's reputation. And, uh, FTX had a pretty great reputation. Uh, you know, which was was bought with client funds, unfortunately. But uh, a lot of people, you know, who should have known better said they they extended FTX a lot of credit or they put they just left a lot of money in FTX because they felt like this was unfathomable. You know, like the, the outcome they were worried about was a hack. They didn't think that that it was possible that basically Sam was running a Ponzi, you know, the whole time. Yeah, I think the speed at which it collapsed is what blew my mind. Um, I had no suspicions about FTX. I never used them, never signed up. I might have registered once to look at the interface, but I never put any funds on it. Didn't have any interest in it, but I was impressed by the speed at which it grew, the sponsorships it took mm -hmm. out. I just felt like, oh, that's, this is impressive what they've done. And But I didn't have any suspicions about it being a Ponzi or what was going on. I mean, never really looked at it. But from the, from the rumors to the collapse, the speed at which that happened kind of blew my mind. And I'm wondering, who knew? Mm -hmm. Because my assumption, you, you can help me with this as somebody who's uh, taken investment in, but my assumption is someone like a Sequoia, usually if they're a lead investor putting money in, do they get a board seat? If you get in a board seat, aren't you doing constant diligence? My understanding was that they gave away no board seats in the round. You know, I guess they just managed to generate enough hype. You know. I it could also be that people didn't want a board seat because they yeah. really didn't want to know how the sausage was made. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe they're afraid to find out. 
So, you know, I, I think it's it's actually somewhat difficult to find really great board members in crypto because right. people don't generally understand the risks or, you know, don't want to have that level of responsibility. Do you think this was avoidable? You know, I, I don't think I don't think the world needed FTX to exist. I think there are plenty of great exchanges that have a proven track record. I mean, so from that perspective, you know, I think we have to ask like, why do they exist? And what is it that they did that no one else was doing that, you know, filled a hole in the market? And, um, you know, I think there are, this goes back to the problem of regulators and, and regulation by enforcement. And, um, you know, FTX's primary innovation, in my view, was doing things that basically no one else could get away with because they were too heavily supervised are too heavily regulated um, because of kind of all the, the license accumulation and all of the, the interactions with regulators over the years. Um, you know, as one example, Coinbase went to the SEC asking for permission to do this, like, it was like three or 4% like yield product. Yep. And they got rejected. So they never launched the product. Meanwhile, FTX is offering basically the same service to Americans from the Bahamas with like 10% yield. So, you know, what, what is the regulator doing there? I mean, they're basically saying, okay, if you want this product, um, you're not allowed to get that product in the United States. Uh, you're not allowed to use a trusted, reliable, proven platform like a Kraken or Coinbase. Uh, and in fact, you've got to go offshore to get this. Uh, so people did. And, um, you know, I think that was why FTX existed because for whatever reason, um, you know, the regulators like to pick on the guys in their backyard, you know, and they've explicitly said, you know, we say like, hey, why are you hassling us about this? There's like 20 other exchanges doing the same exact thing. Like, why are you bothering us? And uh, they'll say, well, you guys are convenient. You know, if we, if we want to subpoena them or we want to go after them, well, they're in another country. It's very difficult. It's a hassle. You know, we're just interested in putting notches on our belt. And uh, you guys are within striking distance. Today, we have Ledger. And this Black Friday, you can secure your digital assets and get free Bitcoin. When you buy a Ledger Nano by the 28th of November on ledger.com, you can receive up to $30 in free Bitcoin. There's no need to line up outside a store at 4 a.m. when you can secure your assets and Bitcoin from the comfort of your screen. Visit shop.ledger.com or follow the link posted in the show notes to secure your Ledger Nano and Bitcoin. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support... BitCasino is the best online Bitcoin casino. To find out more about BitCasino, the first casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation 
which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only are Ledin sponsor, I'm also a customer of theirs too. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also today we have Fidelity Investments. So one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking me how to break into the industry and Fidelity Investments recently reached out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team and help shape the future of money. Now Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day and they have been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. They actually started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services. Their in-house fintech incubator is where their teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they will provide resources, training and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. You can learn more about this at crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. But they have been pretty good at scaring companies off offering services to Americans. I don't, I don't know that they have. You know, FTX, it was very easy to get an account there as an American. Um, there was a time where KYC was almost non-existent there, where they're not checking for VPNs. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we found out that 50% of their users were Americans. But they went after Arthur Hayes. Yeah, I, I, I know. Um, maybe, and maybe they would have eventually gone after Sam and FTX as well, but you know, obviously, it doesn't take that much time to <clears throat> to build a bunch of balances, you know, and, and lose them. And Sam was um, very heavily donating to. Well, that the was my ne- yeah. My next question: Do you think that would that helped? I'm sure it did. You know, I mean, Bernie Madoff was doing the same kind of stuff. Um, you know, schmoozing with these guys. I mean, the SEC even went to investigate him and found nothing, even though it was right under their noses the whole time. Uh, so, you know, I think, um, you know, if you just look at Sam's resume, I mean, he looks like a guy who would never scam anybody, right? He's got this great education, this great family pedigree. I mean, family is very well connected. Um, why would he scam anybody? And, you know, it makes me think that, you know, this, this probably was not what he set out to do originally, you know, is steal a bunch of money because it seems like he's already pretty, pretty well off and, and doing fine in life. Um, you know, it actually makes me think more of these conspiracy theories, which is that, you know, this is some kind of like fed op uh, to take down Bitcoin because there's just so much contagion here. I mean, if you wanted to really screw the ecosystem, this would have been like the perfect way to do it. Right. Yeah. But the contagion exists also because of the likes of what Voyager were doing, what 3AC were doing. You know, I don't think I don't think FTX on its own causes so much damage is because so many people are doing such reckless things. I agree with that. But, you know, there is still a $10 billion hole that maybe maybe belongs to a million people. Uh, so that money has been extracted from the ecosystem. Where did it go? I, I don't know. To sports sponsorships, to the Democratic Party. Who knows where else that went? Real estate in the Bahamas. Yeah. You know, it's that's $10 billion that we don't have as an industry as a community to put into other projects to, to move our industry forward. That's just stolen from us. Um, so there's that. And also, you know, they were prolific investors. They've 
they've been investing in, in everything. They, I think they have like 400 something you investors. You've got that chart. Oh yeah. Oh my God, it's <clears> unbelievable. <throat> Are you talking about their org chart or yeah, just like the, their the investments? Org the org chart. Yeah, the yeah. org chart is also insane. Uh, it's like a maze inside of a spider web. It's, uh, but so they, they were, they've invested in so many companies. I don't know if you heard this, but when they made their investment, they required those companies to keep their, those funds that they invested on FTX. Uh, yeah, look at that. Yeah. I don't even know how you begin to read that. Or manage it. That's insane. Like, how do you... How do right. you and how many people do they have in the whole company, right? They got like one person per entity. Well, it's 50, 50 people, they said, right? Or, or is that 50 FTX and then... Yeah, I guess they're, they're probably split up between Alameda and who knows how many of these but I think companies. it was 132 entities or something they wound down in the end. I mean, how many entities do you have? I think we have... This is a good question because we do have entities out there that are like they have own a license for a particular country or something like that, but it can't be more than like 20 entities. And you've built that up over 10 years? Right, yeah. And there's a lot of work in integrating that, in reporting lines, in accounting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's, it's a total headache. And sometimes we shut entities down because, you know, if we, if we created it for a particular purpose, a geo, and, and maybe the market's just not there, we might just wind it down and close it because there's overhead in carrying that. You got to file taxes for it. You got to do reports. Um, yeah, there's headcount associated with maintaining those entities. So you wouldn't just do it for no reason. And over that period, over that 10 years, you're building up experience, you're learning and making mistakes. Um, you're never a complete product, uh, uh, product. I'm assuming yourself, you're still learning things now. Yeah. And how then can, I mean, look, I think to Google when uh, Larry Page and what's the other guy? Sergey Brin. Yeah, Sergey Brin. They they you know they realized they couldn't run the company, mm -hmm. you know. So they brought in a CEO. Yeah, here we have a guy who's got no real experience running companies, who is being given hundreds of millions. It looks like his board is made of children, mm -hmm. and what they now able to understand how to uh, run human resources for for the company to to scale a company this this size. I, I'm not buying into the conspiracy. I'm going for the simplest. Answer is probably what it is, is that they built something, it grew quickly, they got out of their debt, they made some mistakes, they built mistakes upon mistakes and the whole thing crashed down. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I think happened. Um, you know, people say, oh, he was connected to this person, therefore there's the conspiracy. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that person is what allowed him to raise money because he had those connections. So right, yeah, I'm going for like the simplest version. kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with, with your assessment. You know, I, I think that's the most likely answer. Um, the question in my mind is when did this become a Ponzi? You know, when did it go from being a legitimate business to actually starting to trade or misappropriate client funds? Yeah, that's hard to know. And that's hard to know where the first mistakes came. I mean, what stands out to me is obviously Alameda were terrible traders, mm -hmm. like fucking terrible traders if they built that big a hole. Uh, there's a lot to be suspicious about with the FTT token. Oh, was it, there was the token before it as well, wasn't there? Sovereign or something? I can't there remember. Serum? Serum, serum, yeah. yeah. Do you think it was most likely around the Luna collapse that it all started going wrong? It does seem like that was like the big domino that like kicked everything off and, and started this cascade of effects of like, you, because this is like so incestuous, like everyone had loans with everyone and everyone was using everyone else's like bullshit, like fake token collateral for like, you know, at a hundred percent market price. Um, so I do think like, yeah, Luna kind of was, seems like it was the first domino yeah. there. Is, um, in, in terms of Kraken and, you know, you've seen this lens of what everyone's done and all these mistakes. Um, 
actually, let me ask a different question. When when FTX were blown up quickly, you see a competitor, and you know what it's like with the competitors. You want to go, well, what are they doing right? Mm-hmm. Like, why is this happening? What can we learn from them? We don't want to lose ground to them. When you were looking at them, is there anything you were looking at and thinking, yeah, actually, they're doing this particularly well? Yeah, there's some things they did very well. You know, I think the way that they constructed their futures contracts uh, was good. I think that, um, you know, they they had a pretty good trading interface. You know, they were doing um, stuff that people wanted, obviously, like uh, prediction markets. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really great. You know, so they're doing a lot of cool stuff, you know, and stuff that I would bring to our lawyers you know, and be like, hey, like, you know, they're doing this like, I, I wanted to do this two years ago. Like, what's going on? Like, how are they able to do it? Like, find out how they're doing it. And they would just come back and be like, yeah, this is just like straight up illegal. They're just like, they're going to go to jail at some point. You know, so I'd be like, okay. <laughs> like, well, how do, how do we make that happen faster? Because like, you know, they're stealing all of our business right now. Or, you know, tell me how we're going to like somehow compete with this. And, um, you know, I think they, they did a lot of things right in terms of like, they found product market fit. You know, they, they built stuff that people wanted. Um, it was just stuff that unfortunately other venues could not offer because of the, the legal restrictions. So where does this put you in con- thinking about regulation? And I, I think this is a tricky area. Yeah, a lot of Bitcoiners are anti-regulation, naturally. They mm-hmm. don't want anything from the government to be told what to do. We're in a moment in time where there are regu- regulations here, but you can s- clearly skirt them by setting yourself up abroad, which makes the U.S. kind of anti-competitive. It creates an uncompetitive market. So you, one answer is to deregulate this market within the U.S., but in doing so, when you deregulate it, you also open up the opportunity for more scams to be created. Like, where do you, as somebody who's dealt with regulators in D.C., where are you in this whole picture? Yeah, I think it's a good question as to whether the regulations have actually prevented scams from happening or not. You know, I, I would love to see some kind of data on that, proving it. Um, and, you know, going offshore, it doesn't mean you uh, are not captured by the regulation. Uh, just so happens that you're, you're less likely to be enforced against. Like they're less likely to come get you if you're offshore. Uh, so what it, the effect it ends up having is basically just it's illegal in the United States and you know de facto legal everywhere else because you're just too hard to go get or you know they're too lazy to come get you. Um, so that's a huge problem and and I think that the U.S. I mean I think as a nation has to decide what its national policy on Bitcoin is going to be. Um, you know, do we care about owning? crypto basically uh, as a country, you know, in the way that we kind of own and control the internet. And um, do we want to be a player here uh, or do we want to let some other country that has better laws be sort of the, the central um, you know, epicenter of everything happening in Bitcoin and, and crypto broadly? Um, and we can either, I think we need new laws. You know, the existing laws um, are bad. You know, they, they go back 80, 100 years, uh, you know, pre-internet, uh, when no one imagined the internet, um, they're talking about, you know, commodities, uh, oranges, onions, you know, stuff like that is Mm. like what they're concerned about. Um, and, uh, we take those laws and try to apply them to, to what's happening now today in crypto. And, um, they just don't fit. It's really trying to fit. Um, you know, I mean, this happened with Skype too, you know, as well, like they couldn't, they couldn't launch because everyone was saying, well, these guys are a telephone company, right? And, you know, clearly they're not. Um, but they were trying to fit Skype into, into that hole. 
Um, so I think we've seen this a few times over, over history. Um, I think you either have to back off as a regulator and just say, all right, we're, we're not going to control this. We're just going to back off and, and allow U.S. companies to, to be competitive here and just hope that they stay here because, you know, we're, I mean, the whole reason we set up in the U.S. was because um, we felt like it would, it would earn us more trust. Uh, we felt like most of the early adopters would be Americans. We felt like, um, you know, being here under, under the U.S. legal system, and I think the legal system is one of the best things the U.S. has going for it, uh, and FTX even filed for bankruptcy in, in the U.S. We felt like being here would earn us a lot of trust. It was a better legal system, um, and that was important to, to getting adoption. And, um, you know, I think they could do that. That would be one way, you know, to so just back off. And, you know, we'll see if more scams happen or if when good players are able to be competitive, if scams don't have a place to find a foothold, you know, if they're not able to offer something that these legit businesses can't offer, then maybe they won't be successful. You know, maybe they won't be able to attract people because people go to the scams because they just can't get what they want at the place they trust. You know, like if I could have traded Bitcoin at Bank of America, I probably would have never had a Mt. Gox account, you know? So um, that's one, one path. The other path is they've got to start enforcing globally. And that's a big ask. Um, you know, obviously you can set up uh, a Bitcoin exchange in your parents' garage from anywhere. You know, you don't need a bank account. You can take USDC or Tether or just Bitcoin and Ether. Um, you don't need to have any kind of connections to the legacy world of gatekeepers. So that's a pretty big ask is to to go after everyone globally, but you know, maybe, maybe you just do enough of it and you turn away uh, other people from trying. Um, but they've done almost none of that. So, um, you know, we're sort of in, in the worst of both worlds right now where stuff that people want and are highly demanding and are going offshore to get, um, is, uh, illegal in the U S illegal in, in the regulated markets broadly around the world. You know, so UK is the same. Uh, Australia is the same, Japan's the same. Um, you know, in some in some geos, you have to ask the regulator permission before you even launch a product. So, I mean, Japan is one example. They they restrict the number of the the tokens that are allowed to be traded. And if you want to trade a new token, you have to go get approval. They might take six months to evaluate it. So, that puts Japanese exchanges at a huge disadvantage globally, right? If you want to mm. trade the hot new coin. The regulators sleeping on it for six months. Meanwhile, you can trade it at FTX in the Bahamas, like right now. So, what are people going to do, right? I mean, even if they want to support a domestic business, if you want to trade that asset, you just you're forced to go offshore. Um, so, you know, I think we got to pick one of these strategies and and go with it um, because right now we're just kind of forcing consumers into these sketchy operations. You know, that don't have a proven history. They're not working with regulators. Um, and people keep getting hurt, you know, so hmm. I think that strategy's failed. Although you say that they still could have got hurt in a deregulated market with FTX just being in the US if their practices are still the same. That's for sure. But but FTX might not have been as competitive. You know, imagine if Kraken, Coinbase and Gemini could do everything that FTX was doing. Right. And we had what in, uh, an eight year head start on them. Would they be able to just pop out and do what they're doing and actually be competitive? So it was the regulatory arbitrage they they pulled. Yeah, it was more so, you know, regulatory arbitrage usually refers to like you can um 
you can get away with something in one geo, mm. you know, like an example would be there's a, there's something called reverse solicitation. And I think Australia might be an example of where this works. So there are many countries where this works, where they say, you can't offer this service from our country. You can't market it in our country. But if you're offering it from uh, whatever, Cancun or Mexico or whatever, yeah, like you, <laughs> and you don't market here, but people go to you, they proactively find you and seek you out and, and go sign up with you, then that's fine. Like we're not... The U.S. doesn't operate like that. The U.S. says, we don't care how an American got on your platform. If you took them on, then that's your problem and, and you have to follow our rules. Right. But many other countries say, well, if they found you on your own and you're not marketing here, then like that's on them. Uh, so this is mostly a problem for the states. Um, and so, you know, they may have, uh, I would say like they, they employed regulatory arbitrage uh, for much of the world, but it, that doesn't really work for the U.S. Right. You know, the U.S. would still say you should have been following our rules, even if, even if you're based in the Bahamas, it doesn't matter. But they weren't. Yeah, they weren't. And, yeah. and you know, that, I think that's going to, we'll find out if criminal charges come as a result of that. That's another thing that seems to be quite in interesting is that with everything that's happened this year, we, we haven't really seen people getting arrested. Look, I know a couple of people have fl uh, fled to Dubai where there's no extradition. Yeah. But, but at the same time, I would have expected uh, SPF to be uh, handcuffs right now. Yeah, well, it took a little bit for Mark to get arrested as well. You know, I think uh, I'm surprised that the FBI is not up in there confiscating laptops and like servers and stuff. You know, I would have thought that they would do that kind of immediately. Yeah. Um, maybe there's also some kind of jurisdictional issues going on there. Um, maybe it's Sam's political connections, his family, you know. Made a few phone calls. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really strange. You know, he seems to be given the benefit of the doubt that the, the piece that we saw uh, in the New York Times was just like, I mean, Come it's like, boo-hoo, oh, a, a billionaire, he just like, you know, fumbled the ball, lost a little bit of money. Like, no mention of like, you lost a million clients, like $10 billion. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, he's clearly got the mainstream media on his side. Um, he's, he's probably got a bunch of friends in Washington. You know, maybe they're looking out for him. Um, How do you uh, get the New York Times on side, though? Because the New York Times must be aware that, you know, when you put an article out like this, you're going to get criticized. Mm -hmm. What is the upside to the New York Times to do such a puff piece? Well, this guy that uh, wrote this piece, he had also written the hit piece on Kraken, and um, I think he covered Coinbase as well. So it's only been negative pieces. I mean, of course, well, it's not, it's not, what's his name, is it? The, um, the guy wrote Digital Gold. No. It's not Popper. No, no, it's not Popper. Because he did, he did a, another hit piece on, uh, was it Coinbase? It I, was David... Yaffe Bellany. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Popper did another hit piece on Coinbase. Oh, really? That's but unfortunate. I, I, don't, I don't know if that was it. He might have been at Washington Post. I'm not sure. Huh. Well, yeah, this guy, I mean, he's, he's a young guy. It sounds like he went out and spent some time with Sam in the Bahamas, and he's talking about FTX condoms and stuff. And, like, you know, who knows? Maybe he got wrapped up in the orgy situation there. And, <laughs> Got uh, some amphetamines. And yeah. Had a party. I mean, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Sam has some dirt on, on this guy. I don't know. But, you know, it, it's odd that the New York Times generally attacks tech uh, and, and they've attacked Kraken and Coinbase. And, um, you know, when, when FTX loses $10 billion of client funds, it seems like, you know, explicitly stole them. They write this piece that like doesn't even mention anything about that. 
Uh, so it's very odd. I mean, it seems like the Times is made, or this particular guy and whoever the editor is 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 captive somehow, you know, by somebody, <laughs> or you know, or, or they're trying to protect their friend. You know, I mean, maybe you know, Sam is very. Um, I think his uh, his at least his stated views, at least the front that he's trying to put on, um, you know, looks like something that, that the New York Times would be aligned with. Well, I think it's bullshit. Personally, um, I read the piece attacking Kraken didn't like it. I think I commented and said something to you about that. Yeah, and thanks. and I saw the piece yesterday and it's a puff piece. I'm following his tweets, which are coming across as quite psychopathic. Uh, have you have you read the latest ones? He's no, trying to save the world so. and make everyone whole again. Um, yeah. So, okay. So moving forwards and, and knowing what you know about DC, I know, I mean, you've had to employ people to help you yeah, know, with we've got a efforts. policy team, yeah. a lobbying team ourselves that's growing. Uh, unfortunately, it's probably going to have to get a lot bigger thanks to this. Um, you know, I, I think the blowback in, in D.C. is going to be big. You know, I think they're going to try to attack the industry. Um, there are a lot of politicians just, you know, waiting for anything to attack crypto, any excuse. And this is a gift to them. And, um, you know, I think we as an industry really need to come together and, um, you know, stop fighting each other. It can't be about Bitcoin maximalism versus, you know, proof of stake or any of that. Like, this is a time where, like, we got to be solid together in DC, like all on the same team because they're coming for us. And they're going to try to paint this as like crypto failed, DeFi failed. It needs to be regulated. You know, this all has to go be managed by BlackRock and Goldman Sachs. And, um, that's obviously not what we want. And we know that's not right. You know, we know that this is like, just as Bernie Madoff was not an indictment of the stock market or, you know, equities, uh, this should not be seen as an indictment of crypto. You know, it just happens, so happens to be that the tool that the scammer used to, to steal from people was crypto. You know, this is about fraud. This is about um, uh, a scammer, you know, uh, and, it has really nothing to do with crypto, but they're going to try to paint that story for sure. This show is brought to you by Wasabi. Now, Wasabi is what I'm using to keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. Or the magic happens automatically in the background which was a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently, and Wasabi 2.0 makes it so easy. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I, W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying now. It's a buying time. We're holding right. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini is also running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did, all you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. 
That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients in all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Yeah, that's a massive uphill battle to try and get everyone to come together. Um, look, my show is a Bitcoin show, yeah. as you know, but I happily had Kraken as a sponsor. I only talked about Bitcoin. Um, I know when this show goes out, there'll be a bunch of people listening to it really enjoy it. And then I know in the comments on YouTube, there'll be, why have you got a shitcoin on here? You, there, there seems to be very little ability to get people from the maxi side to come across and say, let's work together. And that's fine. So be it. I mean, they think everything that is in Bitcoin is a scam. And you know, when things like this happen, they will point to that and say that. I, th- I don't think you're going to be able to get people to come together on it. I think you're going to have to fight that battle as it is. Because I think some of the maxis will see you as part of the battle because your exchange isn't Bitcoin only. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you make that change. I don't I, know if you can. I, I'm still waiting to find out how how uh, we can have a Bitcoin only exchange because there's you not can't. much demand for Bitcoin Bitcoin pairs. People always say like, you know, why don't you delist, delist all these shit coins? And I say, you know, the dollar would be the first thing I would delist as a shit coin uh, <laughs> if we could, if we could still have a business and still make money doing that. Um, you know, I think people don't get that. Um, I, I don't think there's enough money to be made as an exchange, maybe as a broker. Um, and there are many successful brokers that just only sell Bitcoin. And um, that's fine. But but what it takes to operate an exchange um, is very expensive and uh, requires a, a lot of smart people. And um, I don't think there's enough money to be made only trading Bitcoin versus fiat currencies. And so I think people ought to think about it like, these other coins, they might be shit coins, just like, you know, maybe most of the stocks on NASDAQ are shit coins. Uh, but they effectively subsidize the cost of, of offering, you know, a Bitcoin exchange, like for, for the good stuff. Uh, you know, they, they help they pay for the security of it. They help pay for the, the licenses. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, personally, I, I think most of them are shit coins and I personally would not hold them. But, um, you know, that also goes for most stocks as well. Uh, but, you know, I'm often wrong about the market and that's why we exist. You know, we exist for price discovery and, and for people to trade their disagreements. And, you know, I don't have, I don't take like a moral position on, you know, which coin is better than other others. Personally, I think um, Bitcoin is is going to be like the the currency that sort of becomes the the global uh, reserve currency. Um, I thought Ether had a shot until it flipped to proof of stake. Um, and now I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical of it for that reason. But, um, 
you know, I think all of these things, they, they have their place. They, um, some of them are experiments, you know, we try things out, we see what works. Maybe we can pull that back into Bitcoin eventually. If it was Bitcoin only, it's the point you're making is that these, uh, multi-coin exchanges will still exist globally and therefore there won't be any competitive companies within the US who have enough money to be able to uh, grow the industry, compete and work with the regulators. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're basically saying? Yeah, I think that if we were Bitcoin only, we wouldn't have a treasure chest to go and lobby for regulation to protect Bitcoin, right? So I mean, uh, I'm probably starting to sound like Sam right now, but if you, if this is like a, you know an effective altruistic kind of like statement, but you know we make money from trading shit coins, and that money goes to pumping Bitcoin, basically, you know, defending Bitcoin, and uh, you know maybe it's a necessary evil because we wouldn't have that money to buy those arms, you know, those those weapons uh, for the battle for Bitcoin um, without that. I think we're in a similar position in some ways. People are like, why do you have that sponsor? They're not a Bitcoin-only company. Uh, the ability to take this team around the world and make this show is the fact that we work with companies who also have crypto. We don't promote yep. their products. We only say buy Bitcoin here. But that gives us the budget to do this, to you know, take a team around the world, to have this equipment, to produce a great Bitcoin show. Mm-hmm. I, I do wrestle with it. I mean, I'm sure you've wrestled with it as well. Yeah, you know, I, I don't tell my family to buy shitcoin number 5,000, you know, I'm just saying like, you know, basically buy Bitcoin and put it away and like, don't look at it for another 20 years. Um, But, you know, I think, I think we got to appreciate that these other coins are generating a bunch of revenue, which does ultimately fund Bitcoin stuff, you know, stuff that's, um, you know, getting the show out getting us to uh, to lobby in DC, you know, the the massive security team that Kraken has that protects Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that, you know, whether whether you're a Bitcoin maximalist or not, um, you know, I think I think you can think Bitcoin is going to be the world's reserve currency and you can think everything else is a shitcoin. Uh, and I think at the same time, you can say like, look, they're coming for all of us together. And if we're on the side, like fighting each other, when they come, we're just going to get screwed. And, um, you know, for the sake of, of the future of the space, you know, I think Bitcoin alone doesn't have enough firepower to win this. And I think we got we to gotta use everyone's troops together. I wanted to talk a little bit about proof of reserves. We're about to, um, do you know the company Hoseki? Hoseki? No. Yes, yeah, a new company that's launched. We're about to use their software for our football team to show the proof of our little treasury and our uh, little charity arm of our football club on our, our website. And that's a really cool thing to have. Um, and, and, you know, everything that's happened with, especially the uh, lending platforms, there's been talk about we need more proof of reserves. There's also a stream of uh, commentary on that coming out saying, well, you know, proof of reserves is a scam because, you know, how do you prove it? It's not a live feed mm-hmm. of what you have. There's no proof of liabilities. You talked about the... Um, Exchange sending four hundred thousand of ETH to I think it was was it Crypto.com to to Gate I think to Gate mm-hmm. and it happened just at the the day before they did their proof of reserves attestation Is yeah I think it like worked the timing worked out to where it like wasn't actually included in the uh, it wasn't. the audit okay yeah but the point being is c- c- could you do that could you do a proof of reserves and you know, can you cheat proof of reserves if it, mm-hmm. if you essentially if you don't have a live feed of your reserves that's an auditable live feed of reserves and your liabilities, what use of proof of reserves? Actually, could that be used 
to kind of gaslight people that you do have the reserves. Mm -hmm. Well, I know Kraken has done a proof of reserves. For sure. Yeah, ours is combined uh, proof of reserves, proof of, let's call it proof of assets, plus proof of liabilities. So uh, those liabilities being the client account balances. So uh, we use this Merkle tree system basically to, to generate this cryptographic proof that um, basically all of the client balances were included in the audit. And, uh, and then separately, you know, we sign a message from all of the, the wallets that we have that show that in aggregate, you know, we have more coins than we have uh, client liabilities in their accounts. Um, and yeah, that doesn't say that, you know, we haven't on the side, you know, taken out some huge uncollateralized loan from, you know, someone else or something like that, uh, or, or we don't have some huge debt somewhere else. So that's definitely a fair criticism. And, and yeah, you shouldn't ever take any kind of proof of reserves to mean that you, know, you have a complete picture of the business. And obviously, even in the, even in the traditional markets, this happens, right? Like you have like Enron situations mm. where you can just hide stuff and, and um, you don't really know if a company's solvent or not, you know, especially uh, not a company with like 300 entities underneath it. You know, it's just very hard to, to look at all that. So, um, and you just can't prove a negative, you know, you can't, you can't prove that something's not there that people suspect is there. So, um, yeah, for us, you know, we think this is, this is a good start is better than nothing, but to take all of some of the, the client account balances and some of our balances and just show that we have at least that much money. And, um, you potentially could fake that for a one-off, you know, but, um, if you do these over time more frequently, uh, it's harder to get away with because you have to, every time, you know, if you were going to say borrow some money to fill a hole that you had. Uh, you might see that happen on chain. You know, you might see, oh, right before Kraken's proof of reserves, they strangely, you know, a bunch of money came out of uh, Roger Veer's wallet and then into Kraken and then went back to Roger Veer two days later. You know, you could have, you could see that stuff happen. So, you know, if if we just did one, maybe you wouldn't see it happen because we have a bunch of time to kind of like stage that. But if it's every quarter, if it's done randomly where, you know, maybe there's something on chain that says like picks the time sometime, anytime in like a three month period or something where, where the chain chooses like, okay, now you're going to do your audit today. Um, you know, I think that would be a good way to do it, you know, to put somebody on the spot could, and you can monitor, you know, could, is there any scenario where customer funds could be protected in a scenario where, uh, say an exchange, uh, was facing financial difficulty, was, you know, looking at bankruptcy. Um, because I've, you know, I, what I didn't realize is when some of these scenarios, when they go bankrupt, the customer funds aren't the customers first. It's actually it's the uh, creditors that are, will be paid off first. It depends on the geo. Yeah, so this is like something that was addressed in Wyoming with yeah. the, uh, the SPDI was that credit or the account holders are first and foremost, uh, the creditors. And you have this separation of the balances from sort of like the business liabilities. Uh, so it really depends on the geo. And, um, I think this is also something that we could use more clarity on, uh, in, in many places. I don't know what the rules are in the Bahamas, but that certainly should be something that people are thinking about when they put their money uh, with a custodian is like, yeah, are my funds going to be mixed up with every other business creditor uh, that this company has, or, you know, are the client funds separate and senior? And what do you think the future is of custodial services? Because very clearly people have been coming out and saying again, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. At the same time, some people don't want to custody themselves, certainly large 
companies might not even be able to custody themselves because mm-hmm. of the rules. Yeah. What do you think the future is for custodial services? I think hopefully people demand more, you know, but um, I thought after Gox that everyone had learned their lesson. But I think what we've seen is so many new people came into the space during the last bull market. Uh, they had no clue about Mt. Gox. You know, they weren't digging into the history from six years ago uh, to find out, you know, what had happened before them. And so uh, I think people just didn't have that burnt into their minds, you know, like a lot of people that have been around. Uh, so I think you'll still see, even in the future, you know, pe- people that come into the space two years from now might have no idea about FTX, Yeah. Uh, you know, much less Mt. Gox. And so they're going to be ready to learn their lessons all over again. You know, I think they will be uh, trusting of custodians because, you know, when you go set, set up a bank account, you're not thinking about is Bank of America solvent, you know, when you do that, you're just thinking, you just presume, oh yeah, they're, they're like a, a legit bank. So. Well, you also, just, you have your FDIC protection anyway. That's and true. We have it in the UK up to 80,000 pound, you're protected. Yeah. So for most people, that's definitely enough to cover their account. So yeah, they can feel pretty good about, about the bank that they're going to. Um, you don't have that in crypto. And I, there's, there's some confusion about this too, I think is, is what kind of insurance crypto companies have. And for the most part, it's pretty much zero. Um, you know, the FDIC covers, there's some exchanges which claim to have FDIC coverage, but the FDIC coverage uh, covers a, a bank failure. So that would be like, you know, in the event that um, Silvergate fails, if we had money at Silvergate, you know, we could get $250,000 back from Silvergate, you know, for example, but it doesn't have anything to do with the exchange getting hacked or the exchange stealing money or anything like that. You know, it doesn't, that FDIC doesn't cover really anything related to the exchange's business. It's just like the other custodian who's the bank that might be holding on to, to dollars. So there's some misunderstandings there, but yeah, you're right about the banks and we don't really have anything like that for crypto. And, and there really can't be anything like that because who's going to print a bunch of extra Bitcoin when you lose it all. So uh, that just doesn't exist. The insurance to cover for hacks and things like that is insanely expensive. Do you have it? Do you um, use it? We have uh, a very low amount of insurance, yeah. Um, but it's mostly to cover against like lawsuits and p- to protect the directors from individual lawsuits right. and, and things like that. It's I not, guess your insurance is your 100-person team and Nick Pococo and Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you've, you've really... And we've seen in the space... Uh, there have been other venues that have insurance to cover cybersecurity and, and they've been hacked um, and the insurance company just fights them on it, you know, like to the death. So even if you have it, there's not a guarantee that you're actually going to get the payout in the end, you know, and, and, and the fight over whether you're going to get the payout could take years as well. You still get in insane levels of constant attacks. I mean, we spoke about this like, Two years ago, I can't even remember, when, when, when was Nick Pacoco? I bet it was longer than two years ago. Yeah, and, you know, one was the volume of the tax, but also the kind of inventiveness of the tax was kind of crazy. Is it, is it just still the same, relentless? Yeah, pretty much always the same. I mean, there's always, like, bots scanning the website looking for, for things like that. Um, you know, they're always testing uh, whether we're vulnerable to some zero day. Um, you know, I think the biggest risk is is the people angle, you know, like having a person, an insider become compromised somehow. So, you know, we've also got systems to kind of track for suspicious behavior occurring inside the company, you know, people trying to open files or things like that, that they shouldn't normally be looking at. So, I mean, there's a ridiculous amount of stuff that we've built behind the scenes to try to track all this. And, 
you know, I think you can never be hundred percent invincible. Yeah. You just kind of got to hope that you have enough controls and monitoring in place that if someone does get in, that you kind of catch them before they get too far. And I can imagine both Coinbase and Gemini have similar amounts, similar large security teams like you. And I guess then when you look at mm-hmm. FTX and you're thinking, well, what did you have? Right. I mean, the team is so small that they couldn't possibly have had enough of a security team to protect what, what they were responsible for, which is, you know, tens of billions of client funds. And now it's being hacked anyway, post everything. I saw today, was it 200 million of ETH or something? Well, yeah, if we can remember. believe that was a, a legit hack, you know, I, I think inside that's- Inside job. Could be an inside job. Could be um, somebody covering their tracks, you know, like um, one thing that happened with Gox was because there was a hack, uh, we couldn't, trust all the records, you know, so, um, it might be to cast doubt on whether the logs are accurate. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the hacker at some point is going to delete all of the systems, you know, and they've conveniently, there'll be nothing for, uh, law enforcement to investigate. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of skeptical of a hack occurring now, if this is the first hack, you know, if it's not the first hack, I mean, if this is occurring now for the first time, that's what they're saying. I would go back and look and see like, did these guys actually have access to your systems for a long time? Was there another hack that actually created this insolvency earlier? But it seems unlikely that they would just be hacked now for the first time. When all this first went out, I don't know if you can talk about this, but when this the FTX stuff started falling apart, I saw Nick Pococo tweeted that there'd been a hack and that they knew who it was. And was it because someone tried to cash out through Kraken? Yeah, there was some movement on an account uh, on Kraken we don't know if it was the hacker or not, or you know if this hacker is even real. But um, you know, I think he was just saying that basically, whoever logged into that account was seemed like they were the account owner or like a known a known person. You know, so we can't say that this was a hacker or like you know there were. It didn't seem like there was an account compromise. You know, and and we have a KYC account. So what do you do with that information now? Well, we were talking to law enforcement, uh, so. You know, I mean, they've, I probably can't say like a whole lot yeah, about yeah. that, but, yeah. you know, law enforcement is involved. They're talking to us about it. And um, seems sure, like a dumbass uh, move though, like to, <laughs> to go through a KYC. Yeah, to go through a KYC exchange. Well, they, I don't know how much of this I can say, but like, you know, apparently they were leaving some amount of money on there. You know, I guess it was safer on Kraken than it was on FTX. So, you know, they're probably doing some uh, trading, you know, maybe they're part of their market making operation was to, you know, trade on, on several venues to get the best price. So um, I'm not surprised that uh, they had an account on Kraken. I think um, many exchanges have have accounts on other exchanges to do, um, you know, for their OTC desks, for example. Our desk might get a request for to trade a token that we don't trade on Kraken. Right. So they might go use an account on another exchange to, to do that trade for somebody. So going forward, what now? What do you want to see happen? I mean, we've talked about you know, the industry coming together. I'm doubtful that will happen. Some people don't see it as one industry, but what else can be done? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm really worried about the near-term blowback and like knee-jerk reaction from politicians. Um, I think we really got to be concerned about just kind of protecting the ground that we have, not giving up any ground in DeFi as a trade for some protection for centralized exchanges. You know, I think we've got to protect as much of DeFi as we can because that's really the final like ground we can retreat to eventually. You know, when when things become too overbearing on the centralized system, you know, I, I think we'll probably just continue to 
see more encroachment on centralized venues and to the point where basically we're all just looking like PayPal all over again, which, you know, we'll have strict KYC rules and everything, all the transactions monitored, you know, you, maybe you can't get an account unless, um, you know, you can produce all this stuff, you know, which will basically keep people out. Um, you know, the whole great thing about crypto is that these 2 billion unbanked people in the world have a rail of last resort and something they can turn to, uh, when the legacy system fails them or refuses them service. And, Mm. um, you know, I think we can't lose sight of like what we're really fighting for here, which is like all of those people to be included in the financial system and, um, you know, financial privacy, the separation of money and state, you know, these things are way bigger than any centralized exchange. And, you know, I think we really need to, to fight to protect that ground that we have in DeFi. Uh, and, you know, we could burn down all the centralized exchanges for all I care, as long as we still have that to fall back to, because we can always rebuild these centralized exchanges. But once we give up the ground in DeFi, like, I don't think we're going to win it back. You know, it's just going to, we're going to keep losing it. What do you mean by the ground in DeFi? I mean, what you can do basically like fully on chain without interfacing with uh, a, a real company, you know, for example, um, you know, some of the, the bills that have been proposed are like, well, if you're to trade on a DEX, you have to be KYC'd or to hold a, a Bitcoin wallet, you have to be KYC'd. And, you know, we want to move to some kind of whitelist program where you go register yourself, you know, at a local post office and, uh, okay, now you have a wallet that you can use. And, um, you know, I, I think that we clearly don't want to get back to that because, I mean, then it's just like, it, it's an even more um, surveilled system than we have, you know? I mean, the, the next step would just be to eliminate cash and then they'd be like, okay, great. Everyone use our CBDC on your wallets that you got verified at the post office. And, um, and if we don't like you, we're going to, you know, blacklist your wallet now. So, hmm. you know, I, I think that, the government will try to take little steps to to gain ground and, and people might see like, well, you know, this is what Sam was arguing for. Well, we're just giving up a little bit of ground in DeFi to get this help for the centralized exchanges to be more, to be able to offer more services. But, you know, DeFi is not his ground to give up. He doesn't own DeFi. DeFi belongs to humanity. You know, like that ground is is all of ours and no centralized exchange for the sake of their own business should be basically giving up this tool for humanity uh, you know, it'd be like saying, you know, Apple, Apple saying, yeah, we're happy to burn down all the libraries as long as you allow us to have our e-reader on the iPhone. You know, yeah, that's great for you. But like, what about everyone else in the world that like doesn't want to have to buy an iPhone to read a book? So, you know, I think that's kind of what Sam was arguing for. And, um, you know, I think we'll see more, more stuff like that where people from the legacy financial system that don't have crypto values at heart come in and try to trade away what we have for some benefit to their own centralized business. So I'm really worried about that. You know, politicians have already come out and made statements. You know, Elizabeth Warren has made some statements, which just like blows my mind because out of everybody, she's always hating on the banks. I know. And like she, she's all for consumer protection. You would think that she would be all over Bitcoin as like her favorite thing. So I don't know what's going on there, but we obviously have a lot of work to do in Washington and, and to educate people. Uh, this is this is my top concern now. Really, is just the blowback from Washington, and um, and around the world, uh, and it was all over the world for Mt. Gox as well. It wasn't just in in the states. This um, is everywhere. Every UK news source I've been on, um, pictures of FBF and Caroline have been you know high up on the 
uh, high up on the news listing. And it's kind of amazing to see because usually they don't give a shit about what we do in this industry unless yeah. it's something like this. We never get the positive stuff reported, the stuff Alex Gladstein works on or cares about. And, right. you know, it's everywhere. It's, you know, it's high drama, but it's fucking frustrating. Yeah, really frustrating. And um, I think it's going to be a long time before we're past it. And we really got to like make sure that the narrative gets switched quickly to this is like a scam artist. This doesn't really have anything to do with crypto other than the crypto community is the victim here. I think that comparison to Bernie Madoff is a great one because they didn't close down Wall Street afterwards. Yeah, exactly. You know, they isolated him. And I think it would help to put SPF in jail. Uh, I think he is a criminal, should well, go to jail. Mark went to jail, you know, yeah. and, and um, arguably Mark was just the victim of a hack. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think there's some some evidence to suggest that he tried to cover that up and he tried to fill the hole. And I think that's what it's going to come down to here as well is, you know, when did Sam uh, turn from either getting hacked or, you know, from running a, a profitable business to actually misappropriating client funds. Um, and he may, he may go to jail, you know, if Mark did time, you know, I think that it's likely that, you know, obviously different legal no. regime, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see time for Sam as well. I hope that we get past the news cycle and, and get back to building um, and all the companies that FTX invested in, you know, I think they had like 400 seed investments or something like that. Those guys were all required to keep their funds that they raised on FTX. So they're all done. Maybe. Are we going to, yeah. I mean, are we going to see, was that the whole treasury? I mean, are, are there going to be 400 startups collapsing in the wake of this? That really had nothing to do with FTX other than FTX was their investor who required them to use FTX as their bank account. So, you know, I hope that we don't see 400 other startups fail, but the contagion, I think there's probably more to come. More scrutiny on people in the future will be good. Yeah, absolutely. That can't hurt. I hope people stay strong because, you know, we need everyone on deck to to address this. And I um, hope people aren't turned off from crypto. You know, it's it's a great thing. It does great things for the world. I think we need to tell more of that story as well of like, you know, beyond the speculation use case, you know, besides gambling on uh, the prices, what crypto is actually useful for. I think that doesn't get enough publicity and uh, it's really doing great things for people and, you know, has even more potential to, to help humanity. And um, I think people are so fixated on the prices so much that we kind of lose sight of like what this is all about. Yeah, man. Well, listen, it has been too long, Jesse. So it's good to see you. We should do it again soon. Yeah. I don't want it to be another couple of years next time. Um, keep crushing it. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Sorry to see you go through a bit of stress with this. You, I could just sense how, but like I say, I, for me, when I read your thread, I was like, this was like, this is almost like Mount Cox PTSD. Like, why the fuck are we here again? I knew it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm glad you came in and talk about it and just stay in touch, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. It was great to get Jesse back on the show. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, like I said in the intro, Jesse's been through this a couple of times when we had Mt. Gox crash in 2014. He was deeply involved in trying to help fix that solution. And when Quadrigo blew up, he was you know, involved in trying to investigate what happened in that. And you know, they made a couple of shows for the uh, Kraken podcast about that. So, so when the FTX situation happened, 
Jesse was rightly pissed off about it. And so he was a great person to get back on the show and talk about this. Look, I don't know what's going to happen. There's been a lot of crazy shit. All I know is Bitcoin is the mission. I'm focused on that. I'm going to do everything I can to spread the knowledge of Bitcoin. Hope you can too. I know some of you have been caught up in some of this FTX stuff. Look, my email address is open. I'm not sure if I can help, but if you want somebody to talk to, please do drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I will get back to you as soon as possible. Okay, I'm just going to go and catch my flight now. I'm heading back to Bedford. I'll be home soon. Got a bunch of cool shows coming out. Got anything you want to get in touch about? Drop me an email. Apart from that, I love you all and I will see you all soon.